Hello, and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favorite jewelry brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. As the Great Women Artists podcast enters into a new season, I wanted to tell you a little bit about our new collection at Alighieri, The Roots. It's an exploration of the roots of what makes us who we are as people, as communities, as a team. It's inspired by the 20th canto of Purgatorio, where Dante encounters Rachel and Leia, an allegory of the active and the contemplative life. Exploring that in order to create a richer community, we need to see and contemplate what we also need to do. In light of this, the Roots Collection has been shopped on a myriad of real women, beginning with the Alicari team and reaching out to a community of inspiring women, including the lovely Katie Hessel. Follow us on Instagram to watch the story unfold. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Woman Artist podcast is the sensational, brilliant critiquer of our times, Chloe Wise. Born and raised in Montreal, Canada, and now based in New York City, Chloe Wise captures the strange times we are living in more poignantly and sometimes disturbingly. I mean that in a great way, more than any artist I know. Working in a range of materials from beautifully rendered painting to sculpture, video and installation, Wise's works are filled with portraits of her friends and acquaintances, food and everyday objects that pay particular attention to our consumer culture obsessed and hyper sanitized world. Perfectly rendered with an almost airbrush-like quality, Chloe's paintings in particular comment on how advertising, fashion and multinational brands feed into our everyday lives. By incorporating these well-known symbols and logos into her work, she makes us question not only our everyday need to consume, but our obsession with portraying an outwardly perfect version of ourselves. which is why another side of her work, her video work, is such a great antidote to her painting, as it shows us an awkward truth of the world, unsanitized, unairbrushed, and often set up in anonymous office-like environments. 
Steeped in the history of art and the history of portraiture, with their triangular forms, large group scenes, emulating a biblical or historical narrative, use of drapery evocative of Botticelli or Bernini, and hands connecting the emotions of each figure, it is with a wry sense of humour that Wise nods to the canon, which explores the shared projected desires built around food and the female body. Highly, highly acclaimed in the art world and beyond. At just 29, Chloe Wise has had a string of renowned solo exhibitions as well as numerous museum shows, including at the Heart Herning Museum of Contemporary Art in Denmark and is set to start at an exhibition at the Andy Warhol Museum this autumn. I have been lucky enough to witness Chloe's solo show, Not That We Don't, here in London at Almin Rec in spring of 2019. And wow, I don't think a show has ever made me think about the present time that we are living in as much as this. And that is why I'm so excited to have her on the podcast today. Chloe Wise, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing Oh my God. (laughs) To what do I owe the immense pleasure of that? I realized that that was so long. (laughs) That was so amazing. Wow. Thank you. For I've had such a long a spare beautiful... time during lockdown. Oh my, I'm, I'm on the first of tears. That was so beautiful. Thank you so much for such a kind introduction. <laughs> that sounds really nice. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, so like I said, you. I've never experienced work that has held up a mirror so truthfully than the world than yours. I don't know if it's the kind of familiarity of seeing so many people dressed in such contemporary dress and accessories as yours, or it's the brands that I would just see going to the supermarket. But I want to start with the people in your work because they are the sort of central protagonists. Why is it that you like to explore portraiture in your work? I don't think I ever made a decision actively to pursue portraiture. I think ever since I was literally born, I was a very social and facial focused visual negotiator of the world. And I've always been drawing and painting faces. I think that's a pretty natural, almost inherent need in humans. I think we just automatically are drawn to and must be as a survival method to understanding the minutiae of facial expressions in terms of reading into where we belong, where we don't belong, what we need to do, who we need to trust. So I think portraiture has always been something that I've been drawn to, whether or not I planned for that to be a genre focus. Yeah. And I don't think a human can ever get past the constant need to perceive and depict the face. Yeah. And I love people. I'm a Sagittarius. <laughs> I really do, even now. But there is this kind of intimacy with your work. I mean, I've read that you've said about your characters, I like them to feel portrayed as they would like to be, not by someone who is above them and utilizing them. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, in terms of the way portraiture has taken place throughout art history, it's often been, obviously, the great male artist self-mythologized, powerful, regal male artists portraying his subjects, which were often also his sexual subjects, yeah. <laughs> whatever it may be. It was definitely not a position of equality unless you get to realism. And I don't think I'm reinventing the wheel by any means by painting people as they are my equals. It just feels like a very natural position to take. I treat painting my friends or acquaintances as an honor because I'm lucky yeah. that I get to portray these people and I want them to feel of course, respected and portrayed and not like it's something that is for my benefit only. But I wanted to feel as though it was a, a marker of a moment for them or archiving. I wanted to feel like a, a snapshot in the way that a painting could feel like a snapshot, which is not that it's necessarily photographic, but more that it captures something that was impressionistic at the time, that something that felt right or accurate to not only the objective viewer, but also to the person who is being portrayed. Yeah. I mentioned in the introduction this kind of idea of sanitization and how your work essentially predicts the future, which for those kind of like, (laughs) 
I mean, artists always do. (laughs) But that's weird, right? Yeah. You were at that show. Well, basically, for our non-US listeners, Purell is like the kind of hand sanitizer in America and obviously featured so prominently throughout your paintings at Almin Rec last year. I mean, by these kind of subtle hints of sanitization, what were you saying about the wider painting and wider society? So just for context, I had this show that we're referring to in 2019. So obviously, this was before the pandemic in the months of, I guess, February and March and when the pandemic began to actually be reported on and send shockwaves of fear and the need to prepare through society. Obviously, in a consumer society, what is the first thing that we do to feel protected? Not negotiate like the healthcare system, but rather (laughs) buy stuff. So everybody ran out to go buy Purell. And then there was, you know, price gouging on hand sanitizer. And there had to be like laws passed about that. And there was, you know, there's not enough PPE and people are buying it on Amazon. And obviously, Jeff Bezos has enriched himself beyond belief because of that. So Purell or hand sanitizer in the year 2020 became a cultural object that was valued at something beyond the material and the object itself, but was valued because of what it represented, which was like a safety in a time of uncertainty. So to throw it back to the exhibition that we're talking about in 2019, obviously I couldn't have known that that was going to happen to Purell, but I was sort of saying that in advance because I always have looked at placing objects within my paintings and sculptures, consumer everyday mundane objects, as a reference also to, you know, the pop art that came before, but also as a way of pointing to how these objects hold within them due to their the way they're advertised, the font, the way that we perceive them culturally, what they say about us as their consumers, what these objects mean in terms of like aspirational purchases in the way that a band t-shirt can say something about the person that's wearing it or the person that buys a band t-shirt is trying to say something about themselves. But in the way that I was choosing these objects that weren't so obviously read because they were such mundane things like... Windex or Purell. I was looking at this more generic way of perceiving commodity within the formation of identity, Mm. where previously in my work, I had looked at fashion items or luxury items or food items in a way that were meant to more obviously point at the commodification of identity through luxury items or these generic objects like Kleenex and hand sanitizer for me represent a larger, more relatable cultural and societal need. We need to feel that we fit in, that we can harmoniously participate within our society for fear of being othered, for fear of being perceived as someone who does not comply by these standards, be they hygienic. The idea of breaking the unwritten code and being othered is so abject that we can't even fathom it. We don't even think of what would happen should we failed to meet the standards that we have been socialized to understand since we were kids, which is also why in my exhibition, it was a lot of primary colors. It was sort of playing to the the way that you're socialized to understand what you can and cannot do in society from the time that you're a kid. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be. And I do perceive and appreciate these codes to be in place for a reason. And I am thankful to be someone who's capable of following them so as to not be cast out and othered because... I'm not saying that we shouldn't be socialized, but there's certain things that we obviously have to unlearn. But there's certain things that we understand and we don't question. I think hygiene is a really interesting focus because the same mentality can be applied to religion or government or any large underpinning system that we are meant to trust in. And if we don't comply by those standards and laws, the unknown is too uncertain and chaotic that we can't even think it. So we wipe our feet when we see a welcome mat. We don't dredge mud into someone's house and make their carpet all covered in footprints. There's certain things that we just don't do for fear of what that would make us, which would be this like wild other. And othering is a whole important topic that I think plays into 
so much of what we are feeling politically and so much of what my work's about. But I was focusing on not the part of the chaos of the othering, but rather the potential violence that exists just under the surface when we do obey and play by the rules and exist in a capital N normal sort of functional society. So there is meant to be in those paintings and in those sculptures and in the video, which I think you described so well, and I really appreciate that, there is this like under the surface awkward tension that verges on potential violence or potential outcasting. Just everything being so normal is weird inherently. Like I wanted to make uncanny and bizarre the normalcy that we have to normalize in order to just get by. And it's so funny because now in 2020, what are the themes that we've just dealt with? Isolation, fear of groups, longing for being in a group, but the result of transgressing the boundary of hygiene or of socializing is this unknowable fear that we all didn't really put our finger on, but it is pandemic. Yeah, It's, It's wash your hands or else, and this is the or else. And it's always been, be careful, don't do dirty stuff, don't eat something that fell on the ground. Like five second rule has always been this or else, but there's always been like more of like a freedom, but this or else has come to pass and it is such a tremendous chaos. I mean, I was talking about the potential for it. I wasn't even trying to point to what does happen. And this is us not getting sick. (laughs) Here is a photo of a painting of us getting along just fine. Like, you know, fingers interlaced, but kind of clenching. Oh my God. Yeah. And I was thinking about the role in Barth's text in his collection of essays, Mythologies, where he does speak about the way that soap is advertised and how the language used to advertise soap is often language that alludes to war. And it's like soap will kill and defeat the enemy, bad germs, the dirty, stained, tainting scum that corrupts your white, clean plate. And soap will be the saving grace that will fight and extinguish and decimate this enemy. I mean, and that language is very much implies that soap is an institution to be trusted in, just like the government, just like the military, yeah. just like yes. oh, abs- like praying for forgiveness from the Lord for yeah. a confession to be absolved from your sins. Not like, that's something I understand, but like there is this yeah. idea of this binary and this like good and bad, clean and dirty, pure and tainted, and soap plays a, a very insidious role. Not that we shouldn't. I'm not anti-soap. But it's this like it's it's the <laughs> yeah. way it's advertised. It's the imagery itself. It's the subtle coding that we are meant to abide by to keep us all in line. Yeah. So that's what that show was about, and that's why there was Purell in there. And it was like this double reading because it was like people hanging out together, but crops, so they're actually alone. And so there's this alone togetherness, and then there's people's hands on each other's shoulders in these awkward ways. But it's like, oh, is that supportive? Like a supportive gesture, or is that actually oppressive? And it's funny because right now. Touching, like hand-holding, is such a gesture of support, but it's actually right now an unsafe gesture of disrespect. It's a fearful – and it's it's just crazy that my show was all about that. And then it's come to pass that gloved hands being something that I perceived as both sexual and inviting – but also ominous and foreboding. Yeah. But sorry, I'm looking at your I work off, like, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's great because I honestly think like I could do like a whole podcast episode of this one painting uh, tormentedly untamed. The reason why I feel like your work is so connected to sort of biblical and historical paintings is for like all these reasons. So like, for example, when I look at this work, it's like the Purell is like this relic and then you kind of have the touching. It's almost the hand of God or I don't know. It, it, there's so much in it and it's as though I really feel like people will look back on this time and that Purell is the kind of religious relic that we now worship right I really appreciate that because that's a, that <laughs> is I mean 
I did relate it to religion in that way, but I think that that's almost synonymous with market value where it's like, oh, this prized possession. And we can look at art in that same way, right? Where you're like, oh, this relic, this object that deserves to be on a literal pedestal, but also a figurative pedestal. There was this idea of value. And so whether it's a religious relic or a marketed commodity or something that symbolizes like the vaccine, for example, if it had a physical form, we'd be buying stocks. I mean, the idea that we commodify, because we know no other way of expressing value. We yeah. can modify something like Purell to the point of it being so overpriced in such a crazy time. Like, I mean, the fact that I had all this Purell because I had painted it, I was like <laughs> somebody, I was like a Bitcoin investor in, in March, 2020. I was like, oh, I'm stacked. Like anybody need Purell? Give me a couple of squirts in your, in a Ziploc bag. Like you're, you're oh like, my God. you couldn't get it. And yeah. so it's just crazy. That particular painting, it does feel like an exact painting of this moment. And in this it's moment, so I don't scary. know what to paint. Yeah. I can't paint that again, but I'm like, <laughs> God, that's the image. Yeah. And there's that fear, but also that distrust. The idea that maybe the person depicted in the painting, which is my friend Logan Jackson, who I love so much, he is looking out at you and it could either be that he's expressing distrust and he's like, what are you looking at, viewer? I'm actually having this Purell ceremony with this gloved hand on my shoulder. What are you looking at? Or he could be like, I'm actually being oppressed or taken into yeah. a cult to be like ceremoniously yeah. sanitized. Uh, can you help me? But it, yeah. whatever it is, there's just no way of knowing. There's, it's like a double reading. And I think that that speaks to the way that so many gestures that we normalize, like a smile can be the yeah. bearing of teeth or a welcoming gesture. I mean, I, I'm really interested in the nuanced, normal gestures, images, movements that we use to guide our adhering to the rules of the normal in order to get by and where we've gotten now and what the root of the need to find our way out of this messy sticky situation by buying stuff like that is the we'll buy a band-aid oh prepare yourself for the even for the protest okay bring water bottles like there's all this kind of like not that bringing water bottles is a commodified thing but water in a bottle is insane i mean water comes out of the sink yeah and it's it's funny that we have to bottle it advertise it and somehow see a difference and that, that different also brands. represents purity as well doesn't right. it it's like oh there's clean water and it's like why does it all have to be so packaged and commodified and branded so we're drawn to certain brands exactly and it's just like a, that applies to every single thing but the fact that like in moments of absolute pandemonium and fear and uncertainty what do we do we try to buy safety or try to buy yeah our admission to a group. Just like people tried to buy their way into heaven, essentially, like back in the day when they used exactly. to like, <laughs> pay for big chapels and everything in Florence. Yes, but, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, I can say so much about this, but also I think it speaks to so much of how, okay, so basically my experience in your exhibition was just kind of profound. I went in, especially, I went a few times, obviously, but I went in on a weekday, like first thing, so I could be alone with them because it was very busy. And it did feel like slightly being an Instagram. I I mean that in a really interesting way because I think your work speaks so truthfully about the present day and all these figures kind of live in these perfect paintings that consume you as a viewer. You know, they're these kind of large scale old master size and in a way kind of give you the same anxiety of scrolling through. So when you said before, you know, you don't know if your friend is being oppressed or like you're the oppressor, there's a kind of dynamic here. In a way, I was cut off from this. I'm not in the painting. I'm not in their realm. Right. That's a really interesting point. And well, that is that speaks to the idea of inclusion or exclusion, which is what this is sort of about. Uh, for me, I was also thinking back to, for example, like a Facebook or MySpace moment or a Skype moment, which is what yeah. we're communicating on right now, where you <laughs> no used to take a photo. <laughs> but even then, like an MSN display photo, like you would have a photo yes. of a group of people or like a LinkedIn photo and you have your arms around each other and you're all smiling, but then you crop it and you just have someone's severed hand on your shoulder and you're yes. smiling. For me, that's always been compositionally such an interesting, that's only 
millennial and beyond, I think. Actually, I'm sure there's boomers that have done the same thing for their LinkedIn image, but that is something that will be only normalized to a millennial and and younger demographic. That's why I was using that compositional strategy of someone in a group, but alone. So with the severed limbs and hands framing them, but they're not attached to anyone in particular because it's just that person being aware of the fact that they are together with people, but they can still feel completely isolated. And it's so interesting because now flip that over. And in 2020, we've all been isolated, but actually feeling quite together in some ways. And the internet has provided us both a way to feel isolated and together. And the FOMO or the lack of inclusion or the questioning, the intention and all of that silliness that comes with existing on the internet definitely plays into my work, whether I mean to or not, because I'm a person that exists on and offline. And also my work is very photographic in that way because I work from photos that I've taken I think the video does it best in that exhibition because it's those fragmented moments, but in movement. So there's just like this awkward dancing and this almost political advertisement sort of speech where they're saying things like, I trust her. We don't trust them. (laughs) And that sort of language that is basically what we're saying underneath a lot of our gestures and a lot of our language. Yeah. But we don't say it in those terms. Yeah. We say things or buy things or attend things or eat things that we know added up together creates our identity or creates how we would like to be perceived. But what we're saying at the end of the day in our decision-making and what we purport to support by with our money, I do buy this kind of thing. I have a tote bag because I don't like plastic bags because I care about the environment because I'm a good person. Like that's what we're kind of saying. And so I trust you or they don't trust them. Like the idea of the fundamental bottom line of what we're saying is as humans, we desire and require codes to assimilate within groups so that we can protect ourselves within communities so we know who to trust, us versus them, don't get othered, everyone wash your hands, and keep on going, keep walking, have a nice day. That's our humanity. And it's, you know, whether it's hearkening back to a like a Duomo kind of thing, there is that. But what has replaced religion in our contemporary day is, is capitalism. Yeah, yeah. And so there is something inherently wrong with capitalism, I'll say that. But I'm not saying that from the outside. I'm saying that from the inside as a participant and someone who understands I need to participate. We all have a role to play and we can be aware of and problematize and satirize and make unfamiliar and uncanny and rethink things that are normal and necessary and continue to participate. And it's that dissonance. It's that normalizing. It's that carrying on. That is what we all share. Yeah, totally. But I think you know, when looking at the paintings, I remember going down to the video floor, which was sort of a floor beneath the paintings. Mm-hmm. And the paintings was also kind of like all this carpeted. But, you know, you go downstairs and then you realize that they're just people as well. And it's like the kind of awkwardness around the people. And that's like, what realm do you want to exist in Chloe Wise's artwork? Do you want to exist in the kind of capitalized, gleaming, smiling faces? Or do you want to be with the others? I mean, it's like you're I trapped lo- on those I stairs. I love that <laughs> you mentioned the stairs because I liked that the video piece was downstairs because for yeah. me, what I felt was that for the viewer, you walk in, it feels kind of perfect in there, almost like uh, The Sims or created in SketchUp because yes, of the benches. Like they feel the so. I'm getting the benches back tomorrow. <laughs> I'm so excited. But they feel like they look like they were made. Well, they were made in online. They're just such right angles and they cast shadows. And that blue is so Microsoft blue. That is what I was referring to, actually, is that like normal Microsoft Windows startup blue. So it feels really perfect in there and like airbrushed, as you said. But then you go downstairs and you see the video, which I think casts all the paintings into such an awkward light because you're like, oh, these people aren't necessarily happy or pleasantly interacting with each other. It's sort of this like I'm in line at the DMV or I'm in a waiting room and there's that anonymity 
but that yes. pleasant yes. kind of like welcome take I a seat elevator but, music kind of thing yes, gone. <laughs> exactly it's about that it was about generic experiences yeah. that we all share you are welcome to sit here person number three like have a seat, but don't get too comfortable. And that's what those benches were about. That's why there's like Kleenex coming out of them and stuff. It was this idea of if you want to participate, you can take a seat because we understand the cues that objects and furniture and architecture and city planning gives us. You see a sidewalk, you can walk there and so on. And so you see a garbage, that's where you're supposed to throw your stuff. So when you see a bench in a gallery that has Kleenex or tissue coming out of it, you're invited to sit, but then the tissue poses the question of which abject fluid are you going to wipe up with this? Pee? Yeah. Blood? tears. And it's just like, wait, why would I be, ex- oh, okay. So if I accidentally cry during <laughs> this exhibition, I can wipe it. Yeah. Thanks. Like I like there to be that kind of question. And it's yeah. sort of implying that everybody's allowed to participate in life as long as they clean up after themselves and just don't show me your sadness. Don't show each other your real vulnerability. Everyone's fine and everything's great and have a seat and wait in line and take a number. And it was about that performativity, which is normal, but it is weird. And it is bizarre when you think about it. And so I like the idea of you going downstairs, seeing it, feeling really awkward, coming back upstairs and seeing the paintings in a different light. So it sounds like you saw the show how I wanted it to be seen. I'm so happy. (laughs) (laughs) I got really into it, as you can probably tell. I'm so glad. No, but it's it's so interesting because I think it's really commenting on a time that is so present. And I think a reason why it might have resonated with me so much is because I think we grew up in very similar worlds. You were born in 1990 and I'm 1994. And we have lived through this such interesting time where advertising and consumerism has shifted in so many different ways, you know, from catalogs to TV adverts, to just constantly being on an iPhone with all these symbols that are trying to sell you things, which is why I think that I relate or maybe just enjoy your work because it is such a critique of how we have specifically grown up. I mean, how do you think growing up in the 1990s and 2000s has informed your work now? That's interesting. Yeah, I think we are in a particular age bracket where we are digital natives, but we are also able to remember a time when this wasn't the way it is. So we are uniquely able to fluidly, fluently scroll through and swipe through this experience and feel comfortable in it. But it's not such second nature that like the Gen Zers, like that grew up like blogging at three years old and stuff. Like, so we have the ability to participate, be part of it, be the people that are pummeling it forward. And I think we have the key to the door that allows us to take a break from it or to fetishize taking a break from it. Like, guys, I'm just logging on to tell you that I'm actually taking a day off of Instagram. So it's a really big, like, really important wellness. Do you remember recharge. the 90s? Like, that's, but yeah, like, th- but that's it. Like, we have this, the in and out. Yeah. That's that, I think, 90s yeah. ability. And I feel like my work operates in that place. My life operates in that place. On one hand, I'm like, never going to go off the grid. But if I go off the grid, I will tell you that I went off the grid. And I don't know how to not share and how to not frame and crop and experience things through having to have documented it on my phone. But I also can turn that off and be, as I have been for the past four months, fully immersed in nature apart from everything. And so I think that we exist in a inherently more suspicious and critical group. For example, my parents are like boomers are just like, yeah. they'll just buy more things and trust the government more <laughs> then. <laughs> but more people in prison and then it will be okay. Yeah. And we're like, no, 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 wait, hold on undo everything, let's start over. But also I need a pumpkin spice latte and I have to put it (laughs) online with a witty caption. I need my advertisements that are advertising dish soap to be funny and quirky and weird like me because I'm indie. Like we we have this duality. But I think that we're uniquely situated in a way that we can still be critical and participants. And I think it's that particular 
duality, being complacent participants in a system that does not work for us, and also the biggest critics of the same system that allows us to have this uniquely human thing of being like, you can't have both, but we have both. So here we are. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I feel like with your work, you get this photoshopped airbrush 2019, 2020 thing, but then you also have this pixelated 90s style where it's all a bit kind of awkward because technology hasn't quite grown yet. Yeah. I think maybe the sweet spot is 2013. Yeah. But I like something existing between being, I mean, in the 80s, there's so much beautiful airbrush. In 2003, when we were teenagers looking at fashion or TV in a way that was actually inspirational. You know, you had a simple life in Paris, Hilton, Nicole Richie and stuff that was just like yeah. so sexualized and saturated and yeah. glowing and crazy. And I kind of <laughs> like to satirize that moment while yeah. also appreciating the formal beauty of it. So you went to school in Montreal and then you also came to New York City. I mean, I've never been to Canada or Montreal, so I don't know, but I've been to New York and it is just like capitalism on E. What was it like kind of moving there? I mean, do you think that your work responded to the places where you are living? Absolutely. I mean, I'm an American citizen as well. So I was always going to the US. I moved from Montreal to Toronto. And when I got bored of that, which was pretty quick, I moved to New York. <laughs> and it didn't feel like such a big deal because I already had a lot of friends here and I was going back and forth quite a bit. And I was working and painting and making sculptures and it felt like a natural progression. It wasn't such a culture shock or something. I, I lived in a city, but it was, yeah, I, of course it affected my work because I got here and I had my first group show, let alone solo shows once I moved here. So I didn't have that much of an output before I moved here. But at the same time, my work has been the same <laughs> kind yeah. of thing since I was yeah. in high school and university. It's not changed that much. It just changes yeah. at a normal because as outside a British person, it's so kind of branded. And when I think of America, I think of mass consumerism and brands. And I feel like, I mean, I'm very, very, very fascinated by American culture just generally because I think it's bizarre and crazy and new and built and, you know, it's just crazy. so big. <laughs> and I think yeah. your work almost embodies that because it is so brand focused. Do you think you are specifically focusing on American culture and the banality of American culture. Yes, but Canadian culture is connected. I mean, yeah. I think Make America Canada, Canada is much better at handling human issues, but it still <laughs> abides by the same. It's dictated by what the American market does. I'm responding yeah. to North American, Western civilization yeah. values. And it's not that different. I mean, it's different from London in a lot of ways, but I think a lot of what we're dealing with is a ping pong conversation between the US and all the other countries that it steals from or colonializes and inspires or leads the way for. But yes, I, I think it's uniquely and specifically American culture, American imagery that I am celebrating slash criticizing slash horrified by. Yeah, yeah. And the logical end is we're sliding into an authoritative dictatorship. And I'm so scared. And you know what's going to happen and what's been happening is that while we slide into the apocalypse of this constitutional humanitarian crisis. And as we fall into the clutches of possibly dictatorship, literally Trump doesn't want to leave office, we're going to keep on making ads to buy our way out of it. We're, going, we're not going to have a, a, yeah. a meaningful ability to actually dismantle. And so I never imagined things would go to the place they're at. Yeah. And so quickly, my God. So crazy, but it's also been there all along. Nothing is yeah. new here. This has always yep. been a possibility festering below the surface. So yeah, my work is lighthearted, but it has a darkness. But I do think that the things I am looking at, referring to, and criticizing are probably 
American. Because it kind of reminds me of like the American dream or something. Like there is this, yeah. I, like this the obsession to, like I'm looking, yeah, but literally, so I'm looking at this work called Uncanny Valley Girl, which is your most recent work, Ivanka's Ethics Violation. And it's Ivanka Trump. I mean, talk about embodying the fakeness of the American dream. I mean, just Fuck so her. messed up. Ah, I mean, it's freaking me out just looking at this work now. Yeah. (laughs) But she's kind of holding a tin and it says Goya on it. I mean, can you tell us about this work? Yeah, maybe you don't follow the minutia of the American news cycle the way that I do or we do over here. But there was a moment when I painted this where the news of the day was that Trump, okay, like this is during the pandemic when Trump should be focusing on telling Americans how to not die by wearing life-saving protective masks but instead he's like politicizing beans like he made this whole thing about goya beans because goya is like a huge trump supporter as a company but also they're like a huge huge oh billion dollar company company. yeah i've always thought it was interesting that it's called goya because goya is like i'm I'm referring to the The painter yeah yeah, the painter but it's an ethics violation to promote a brand when you're a president or a presidential family member so in the middle of a pandemic being like well all goya products are good and it's like oh actually you can't be doing that he's like oh great and then he sits at his desk in front of like all of these goya things and he's like posing like this and he tweets that which is crazy oh my god there was a public outrage about that because every day there's a public outrage as there should be and then (laughs) ivanka tweeted that exact photo of her holding the the goya beans (gasps) no i thought it was your imagination it looked like one of my paintings so everyone sent it to me and i was like i guess i have to paint this it's insane she's posing with it and she tweeted if it's goya it has to be good which is goya's slogan and she also tweeted it in spanish which like fuck you dude you're literally deporting and separating families and they're the most violent administration to undocumented immigrants and just brown or hispanic people in general and so the hispanic community was so upset about her utilizing that language and that imagery and the and the can and so there was a big boycotting of goya and that image to me was just so hilarious because it was so cavalier and shitty to be like oh there's a public outrage about my father violating ethics with him promoting like a disgusting ex-football player drunk red in the face old man with a bunch of cans on his desk with thumbs up I mean it's disgusting but the the fact that she went and did it it's like can't you even like she always pretends to be classy and have this decency and it's just disgusting horrible but so I painted that and it wasn't like a serious painting. It was like a little sketch I just did because I was just, yeah. I listened to the news all day and I'm freaking out and I just <laughs> did that. And I posted it on Instagram and there was like this huge debate on the <gasps> photo and it's this long, crazy thing. And I give a lot of time to people that want to ask questions. Some of the questions are just silly and some people are actually have genuine questions and they're coming from a place of wanting to be understood and wanting to have people like cis het white women not you know speak in a way that does not feel fundamentally appropriate fine I totally understand that but there's people that were like you're white so you can't paint goya beans and I was like I don't know if that's what this is about or like Ivanka and Trump are racist so you can't paint them and I was like no I mean I'm not going to paint Trump because he's disgusting but I'm going to paint Ivanka because she's part of the the problem that I'm trying to point out, which is like the white woman's complacency, like this like upper class white privileged woman who is just complacent and honeypotting or sugarcoating the violence behind this regime by being this like, you know, there's so many white women that are responsible for voting for Trump. I mean, we have to talk about them too. And as a white woman, I have to also problematize that 
culture. Not that I feel like I relate to Ivanka in any way, but I'm definitely going to point my fingers at that problem. But painting doesn't always mean celebrating or supporting or rallying behind the subject that you're painting. Even though I tend to paint people that I love and support, I was painting someone that I disdain, almost like a meme, because obviously we're talking about this like two months later, but it was a huge moment at the time. So I love the idea of like almost cutting out a moment in the newspaper, painting it. It's such a ridiculous thing to do, but as a moment to show the absurdity of what was going on and paint it. And I also was referencing Saturn devouring his son. She's like bleeding out the mouth because it's Goya. But I think there should be a place for painting or any kind of artwork to discuss and negotiate some of the ugliness hiding behind some of the acceptable imagery that we are faced with. And I think there's space for dialogue. And I had really great discussions on there. And I took people's questions and I answered. And I was like, I totally get where you're coming from, but here's what I think. And it was really, really worthwhile, but it also went out of control. And it was like, guys, wait get out of this. It's not a fucking public forum or a town hall. Let's go get people to vote. Let's go do something and keep protesting and being active and not like pick apart who can paint what on Instagram. It's insane. But I think the way that you play with food is so interesting because in a way, interestingly, quite similarly to painting, painting is this incredibly messy, liquidy thing. And then yet everyone's obsessed with framing it in these like gilded frames and like immortalizing it as this pure relic. And it's like, well, if you just painted, it wouldn't be on this square. Why do we always have to like crop again? Like like, everything comes back to your paintings. But I'm so interested in the way that you kind of integrate food in your work because, you know, even if it's like mayonnaise or messy fruit, everything is very contained. I mean, what are you trying to say about naturalism in an obviously kind of artificial and materialistic world? Oh, you ask such good questions. And you know, I'm going (laughs) to go off for like an hour. Anybody listening? I, I went to your show, what, like a year and a half ago? And You're yeah. amazing. Your questions are so wonderful. Thank you. To anybody listening that needs to take a break right now um, before I go off, like take a, take, have a glass of water, or, you know. Okay, so where to begin? So the way that you referenced how painting is messy, but we have the need to package it neatly, I think that applies to everything. Sex is messy, but we want to package it neatly. Food yes. is messy. And I mean, the food industry is a disgusting, sickening, world-ruining industry i mean even the way that they're treating covid is insane like you know so many deaths in the meat industry and they're not even being penalized at all like they got a slap on the wrist for like not having sanitary working environments people are dying i mean it's crazy like the meat industry and the food industries are horrible and they still put on a smile like la vache kiri the laughing cow like this cow is a, like a cartoon smiling cow that's like, go ahead and eat me. Yeah, like that's the public facing imagery. And so we're yeah. like, oh yeah, eating a hamburger or having milk is this fine, normal, natural thing we do. And it's like, hold on. No, it's not. We artificially inseminate and murder female yeah. animals at a rate that is, and it's horrible for the carbon emissions. It's so crazy how we have this like meat packaged public facing narrative of the way that advertisements and food pyramids and packaged foods and supermarkets can present to us something that is so separate and so fractured and fragmented from what the actuality of the process. I mean, we can go deep into like the history of agriculture and why it ruined humanity, but we we don't have to do that right now. I mean, everything is sanitized and women's bodies are sanitized just like how food is. And I prefer a seedless watermelon because it's hard to eat the seeds, but that's ins- it's insane when you think about it. Like you want the thing without the thing that allows it to recreate. But I think about that in painting and I think about that with the sculptures where the foods, I mean, I could show you some now, but this is an audio program, but that's like a messy, messy pile of pasta with spaghetti and meat sauce. In my museum show, which is just coming down, they're on mirrored plinths. And I had that really large installation that like six or 10 foot table of, it's like a mirrored table with this Dutch looking still life of hand-painted hyper-realistic food. 
dripping everywhere. And it's this impossible moment because food, the moment that it's advertised to you or when it's coming to your table or it's coming out of the oven, it is attractive, appealing. You desire it. It's like steaming, gooey. It's not been messed up and digested yet, but the inevitability is the mutability of it. And so there's this inevitability to food where it's like all the messiness exists outside of the moment that we represent or think about, which is the moment it's coming to the table, like the moment that you've been waiting for, the moment of pure potential. And so I like to represent food in this sloppy, but attractive, but gross way. But the fact that it's dripping means that it's in motion. But the fact that it's plastic, stagnant, still not moving because it's a sculpture reminds you that it's this impossibility. Like the thing can't be forever, but the fact that it's forever means that it's fake. And then there's that dissonance, you know? And so I just like tuning into that moment, that potential moment and that the grossness of it all, like my sculpture. And there's like milk being poured and there's a stream of milk. Well, it's not really milk, it's plastic, but being poured into a plate of oysters and they're dripping all this liquid onto the mirrored surface, onto cheese, onto salmon with watermelons covered in milk. And it's just this disgusting but beautiful bevy of an impossibility of a moment that cannot last forever, but is plastified so it can. But I mean, you know, so much of your work kind of deals with as well, like the female nude beside consumerist objects such as milk, fruit, cheese, etc. Like, why do you like to pair these kind of dualities, women and food together in this kind of like hyper-realized, hyper-sanitized, hyper-saturated way? Yeah, it's funny also. I mean, I haven't been thinking in those terms recently because I feel as though even using the term women is difficult because it's not inclusive enough to speak about all of the objectified, marginalized subjects that exist in the world and are advertised back to us and how our identities and bodies are commodified and have been throughout history. So to say women is fair enough, and I do it, have done it, and will continue to be like, I'm painting women, but I'm also painting a lot of trans bodies in the way that they want to be depicted, that is. But I think about the way that just bodies are commodified in a way that, as I just said, things that are so sticky and messy and untethered and have so much potential for chaos have to be packaged neatly and sold back to us for us to understand who we are supposed to want to be so that we can buy into being that. And that has to do with ownership and power and that has to do with like who represents who. And I think painting non-male bodies alongside foods that are gleaming and attract us and somehow sexualized in the way they're advertised is a way that women have been spoken about or portrayed and the way the food is portrayed. And it's both of them are for male consumption, essentially. And that's just about power. It's just about greed. And what are the core desires that force us to keep going and to seek out certain things? Like, what are the desires that pull out our really human parts? And it's like sex, what's related to power. Money, oh, that's related to power. Safety, oh, that's related to power. Power itself, well, that's related to uh, white supremacy or patriarchy. So there's always this like, who's painting who? Who's representing what? How are these things represented? And it all kind of just comes down to our desire for power, our fundamental need to be committed to these structures in order to just get by and to be accepted by those in power and la 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 la. Yeah, absolutely. But then I'm interested in how you also feature so prominently in your work. I mean, you are such a presence as a person in your work, but also in real life and online, which is great. And in a way from the outside, it feels quite 
Warholian. You know, Andy Warhol would be very present in some sort of way in his artwork, and it would be very much about his friends. I mean, how do you feel about your presence in your work? I appreciate that comparison. I love Warhol so much. I think about Warhol all the time. I just don't think I planned it or maybe I'm just narcissistic and that's because I'm no. a, pro- a product of no but as a product of my yeah. environment but also I don't see a separation yeah and I don't have any shame or I'm not ever holding a fan up and being like don't look at me I'm like no I'm here here's what I'm gonna say I'm gonna take up the yeah. most possible space yeah. all my friends are coming what's yes. up y'all and I have a joke I'd like to share <laughs> with you and here it is that's just like how I am Sagittarius energy but in the Warholian way I guess he gives permission to be before and behind the lens to be on and between the canvas he has that permission was given and it's always this like unforgivable thing and I love that one of my friends is an amazing comedian Joe Castlebaker and I watched something he posted online last night this just stuck with me and it was just like (laughs) him it was like it's like facetious and satirical but he's just like I'm sorry for everything I posted online can you believe I put all those things I did and said (laughs) online sorry I'll never do it again and then and I just died I laughed so hard I was like it's like that's how I feel I'm just like oh sorry you guys did I share too much I'm so sorry I put everything I've ever done on there oops wink I'm gonna do it again like you know I just feel like that's just that's just me and I took a big break from being in my work and this summer I was out east and I was painting a lot and we didn't have power a lot of the time because of storms and I would be like well I don't have my iPad to paint from so I guess I could paint nature which is fun to do but I want to paint bodies and so I took a mirror and I, would, I did a bunch of self-portraits and I was like god that's fun and easy because I'm right there so yeah. um, it's, it's a combination of access and just not caring not to but my yeah. friends they really make my work what it is because there's not much of a barrier between the jokes or the fun or the silliness or the experiences that I'll have in real life with friends and then what happens online or in a video piece or in a painting they kind of bleed together I really interested in your process because I mean again <laughs> but I was like well, so you know being in that space it was also this kind of beautiful protective space and you really did feel like you were gazing lovingly at every aspect of your friends whether it was kind of protecting them or loving them or celebrating them and I loved that and and so what is the process when you are painting do you get everyone to come to the studio do you paint Mm -hmm. everyone from life is it one big party can I come Uh, you absolutely can come I wish it was a big party can we please get into groups again yes god pandemic can you stop so we can party that's what's been really hard for me in terms of painting lately I haven't made one big painting since in 2020 because I haven't been able to get a group of friends together but I mean I could paint like a single subject but I've been painting really small intimate works lately but to answer your and the cats yeah and oh my god they are making out right now it is so cute to answer your question what I do is I paint from photos not from life painting from life would take way too long and no one's going to sit that long and the light would change and I get people together whether it's one person or a group of people for the not that we don't show it was groups of people and I get them all together and I take a bunch of fabrics and stuff and I put fabrics behind them and drape it in a certain way and create this sort of environment and then I get them together. I put lighting. I put coconut oil on everybody on their hands and noses and cheekbones so that they're really shining at the highlight places so that I can really identify that moment of gleaming, shining, sticky, je ne sais quoi. And I just take photos and I just paint from the photos. And what do you want people to learn from your paintings? To learn. That's such a nice question. I would like people to walk away questioning some of the things that we leave unquestioned our relationship to objects, to each other, 
how aware we are, you know? Yeah. Things that go unspoken, rules that go unbroken. Wow, that really <laughs> rhymed. Um, Can we watch the musical? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, coming soon. Don't even. Yes. I, I will and would. You don't know how much I the sing. The show must I'm, go on. <laughs> I sing all day, every day. Um, no, I, I, I would just like people to walk away being like, oh, more than meets the eye. I will now apply that questioning yet celebratory stance to my experience. If somebody can walk away from seeing my paintings and videos and giggle and then <laughs> think differently about products at the grocery store or think differently about the way that someone is portrayed and question it or think in a way that makes something that was once familiar feel just a little bit more strange so that we can question it properly, then I feel like I will have succeeded in that way. So I think I would like people to learn question mark, question mark, question mark. <gasps> And what a great way to end. Thank you so much for this incredible discussion. I mean, it went so quickly, but I have to ask because this is the Great Women Artists podcast. If there was a female artist past, present, who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them? Alice Neal. <gasps> Mine too. Yeah. Oh, wow. I would say, wow, you really did it. You really did that, huh? You really did. And then I'd give her a kiss on the lips if she wanted me to. Oh, she definitely would. Did a, you see her on the Johnny Carson show? She's no, um, no, but I actually, it's like in my things I need to look up list from <laughs> I listened to an episode of your podcast with yeah, the with most. Helen, with, Helen is so incredible. <laughs> I cried. She is so compelling and incredible. Yeah. I do look at her paintings quite a lot. I mean, some of my paintings are much more like realistically rendered, and some of them are much more painterly and messy, and I kind of oscillate and I don't really like commit to any style of painting. I don't think, but there are times when I'm staring at her paintings. And I'm like, note to self, let yourself go. You don't need to blend. You don't need to focus so heavily on achieving something technical. Sometimes if you just let go and trust yourself, like this happens. And so I look to her for permission to trust a brushstroke more than I would if left to my own devices. Thank you so much, Chloe Wise, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. It was so much fun. Thank you all so much for listening to the 42nd episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the brilliant Chloe Wise. It was such an incredible insight into her work and I urge you all to check out her great work. Please do see the show notes for further links. This episode was sound edited by the great Amber Miller and if you have been enjoying this podcast so far, I would be so grateful if you were to rate, review and subscribe as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Woman Artist podcast with me, Katie Hessel.